Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Will you join me as we pray for our world, ourselves, and for the Lord to speak to us? Let's pray. Lord, we worship you as the sovereign God, the one who rules, who's in charge, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you're also a God who loves us and you're kind and you're gracious and you're generous and you guide us, but you allow us to make choices along the way and, and you help us make good choices. Lord, as we think of our world, we, we think of the choices people are making right now in the midst of a pandemic and Lord, we need your help, we need your guidance we need your healing touch, and we pray for these things. We pray, too, Lord, that we would respond well in the midst of a crisis, that we would experience your peace in our hearts, and, Lord, that we as believers would show the world around us that we can respond in a way that is kind and gracious and loving and without fear and full of hope, regardless of what's going on around us. Lord, we would ask for, in response to the current election that we've had, uh, we pray that you would bless our nation, that we would all respond with civility, with kindness, with graciousness, with understanding, with hope, with love. And we Christians, most of all, that we would shine forth Jesus Christ in the days ahead. Lord, we would ask your guidance upon President-elect Joseph Biden and President-elect or Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, Lord, and your guidance upon new city officials and government officials and our own state and states around the country. We pray, Lord, that our Supreme Court would make good decisions, and, Lord, that our nation would work well with diversity and with different opinions and people of different backgrounds, but we'd come together in the way that our nation's forefathers had planned for us to work together for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to do that and to do it well. Lord, we also just pray for what you're going to teach us today through people who have gone before us and have experienced crises in the world and who obeyed you, who followed you, and that made all the difference. We ask now for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, for him to speak through me, as Peter said, the oracles of God, that we might be obedient to your word. We pray all these things in that marvelous name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, 20 years goes fast. At least that's what my dad told me when I was young and I had just completed my obligations in the United States Navy and he said, you should stay in the reserves because 20 years will go fast and after those 20 years are up, you're going to be glad you stayed in. You're going to be glad you get the retirement benefits and the medical benefits and I was a young man and I didn't care about those things at that time. But I took my dad's advice and dad was right. The 20 years went fast And now that I'm getting those benefits from putting in my 20 in the military, I'm really glad I have them. (laughs) Joseph was a young man. He was 17 years old. He was brash. He was arrogant. He was spoiled. And he had a full life ahead of him, but he had no idea what that life would entail. But God did. 
And really the question in Joseph's life is the question we all have, will we trust God or not for the decisions we have to make, both young and old? 20 years later, at the age of 37, Joseph found himself quite literally saving the world. And looking back, I'm sure he thought those 20 years went fast, even though those were the worst 20 years of his life, filled with abandonment and betrayal, with false accusations and imprisonment. And yet he had trusted God. Here's an example of someone whose heart is at peace in the midst of a world crisis. And I think we can learn from him. The COVID pandemic days are especially long, aren't they? And they're especially long if you're a parent of children. And you're, especially if you have children who are, I was going to say going to school, but are not going, going to school. The days are long. The days seem like weeks. The weeks probably seem like months. The months like years. But someday we will all look back and think, wow, that time went fast. Someone has well said, when you're a parent, the days are long, but the years are short. As we continue today in our series, A World in Crisis, we come to a world in crisis, a heart at peace. Does that describe you? Joseph was Jacob's favorite of 12 sons. He also had daughters too. It's a big family, but when you have more than one wife, you can have even a bigger family. (laughs) And Jacob's 12 sons would be the ones who from the nation of Israel would be spawned, and we'd have the 12 tribes of Israel coming from these 12 sons. Something that God had promised not only to Jacob, but to Jacob's father Isaac and to Jacob's grandfather Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. It didn't depend on anything Abraham did. It depended on what God did. And God never breaks his promises. And so the Abrahamic covenant was a promise by God that was unconditional, that will never be broken, and it was a promise that he would create of Abraham a great nation, and they would have the promised land, and they would have it forever, and they would have a king to rule forever. Well, Jacob had a favorite son, Joseph, and he singled him out for special treatment. And in order for people to know that Joseph got special treatment, Jacob gave Joseph a special coat. (laughs) And Joseph wore that coat everywhere. Unlike us, he didn't have myriads of jackets or coats to choose from. He had one, and it was the special coat. And that special coat angered his 10 older brothers. When parents show favoritism to one child over another, it's harming both children, and it's harming the family. Let's pick up the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to pick it up in verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 We read, now Jacob lived in the land where his father, that would be Isaac, had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. 
He was a tattletale. He's with his brothers. His dad's not around. And when they get home, he goes, Dad, guess what my brothers did? That certainly didn't ingratiate him anymore with his brothers. So the first thing we learned about this 17-year-old boy is he was a tattletale. But there's more. We learned that he was spoiled by his father. Verse 3. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic, a special robe. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And how did they react? And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. On friendly terms means they couldn't speak to him literally in peace. There was no peace in their hearts when they spoke about their brother. Parents who play favorites with their children set up everyone for disaster, and disaster was just what this favoritism was causing. But there is another problem, one of youthful arrogance. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream. And he didn't hold it and keep it to himself. He told it to his brothers. And when he told it to his brothers, they celebrated with him his good fortune. No, it says they hated him even more. Now, we have to read between the lines, but how do you think Joseph shared this dream to his brothers? Apparently not graciously and kindly and humbly, because they hated him even more. Verse 6, and he said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheep rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves, well, they gathered around, and they bowed down to mine. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? <laughs> the answer is yes, but they didn't know that. Are you really going to rule over us? The answer is yes, but they didn't know that. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And again, we read between the lines, and it sure sounds like he's not being gracious and humble, but he's being arrogant and self-centered, and his brothers hated him even more. Verse 9. Now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still another dream. Well, when he told them the first one that hadn't gone well, and now he's telling them he's got even another one. What's he expecting? And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me, and he related to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? This hasn't gone well for Joseph. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, those of you who know the rest of the story know that these dreams get fulfilled some 20 years later. But of course, neither Joseph or his father or his brothers knew this. But God did. God knew the dreams that Joseph had as a 17-year-old, would be fulfilled 20 years later. Because God's omniscient. 
He's all-knowing. He knows everything. God knows everything that's happened in the past, but he also knows everything that's going on right now in the present, everything that's going on in your heart, your soul, your home. And he knows everything that's going to happen in the future. He's never surprised. He never says, oh, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) He knows it all. He knows how your decisions today are going to play out in 20 years, in 100 years. But God also knows, and don't miss this, because I think we overlooked this or maybe never thought about it. God not only knows everything that's actually going to happen, he also knows everything that potentially could happen. If you're taking notes and you're outlining the first truth that we want you to understand here, number one is this, if you're taking notes, God's omniscience means God knows all things, past, present, and future, that are potential, potential as well as actual, potential as well as actual. What this means is that God knows what will happen if you say yes to a marriage proposal, or yes to a job offer, or yes to having a taco, (laughs) but he also knows what would happen if you say no to those things. God knows what will happen if you choose to obey him, but he also knows what will happen if you choose to disobey him. And he knows all the ramifications of your disobedience as well as your obedience. God knows what will happen if you stay single for your life. But he also knows what will happen if at some point, instead of being single, you decided to get married, and you have six kids, and your kids have kids and grandkids, and he knows every decision they could make as well. He knows every possibility, and of course, every possibility is absolutely infinite. But we have an infinite God. Sometimes we think, well, that that seems impossible. Well, that's only because we have a small view of God. And we think, well, that's really hard for God to know everything potential as whether actual. Well, no, it's not. There's nothing easy or hard for God. He's all-powerful. Everything's the same in terms of how hard it is. It's not hard for him to know everything potentially as well as actually. God's omniscience means God knows all things, past, present, and future, that are potential as well as actual. Think about it logically. That has to be true. If it wasn't true, God couldn't give you advice. If he didn't know what would happen if you made a bad decision over a good decision or a yes over a no, how could he tell you the best decision to make? He has to know all the negative ramifications of every decision as well as every positive and good result of every decision. He has to know that or he can't guide us well. The greatest power affecting the outcome of all events, of course, is God. But the second greatest power affecting all events and their outcome is your free will. God has chosen to give you and me a free will to decide certain things. And our decisions affect future events. You see, God has a preferred will and he has a permissive will. He prefers that you would be obedient and do this, that, and the other thing. That's his preferred will. 
But his permissive will is to give you a free will like he did Adam and Eve, and you can choose to reject him, and that changes future events. But there's some events that will never change, that God has determined will never change regardless of the decisions you make. A.W. Tozer, the great Christian Missionary Alliance pastor and preacher and teacher and writer, put it this way, and I think he puts it well. It's as if we are on a cruise ship going from New York to London. The destination has been predetermined, and the ship is going to end up in London. But while you're on that ship, you have free will to do certain things. Now, you can't ride a horse. You don't have that option. But maybe you can play shuffleboard, or you can dance, or you can listen to music, or you can take a nap, or you can eat. God has given us free will. Now, some things we can't choose. We can't choose everything, but he's given us a choice in certain areas, and those choices affect other events. Look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which is probably the best-known and most memorized proverb, and Shannon didn't know I was going to say that when she said it was the first verse that she memorized, the verses, but it says, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Well, that's a choice. You don't have to trust in the Lord. It's better if you do, and the proverb is going to tell us why it's better if you trust Him, but you don't have to trust Him. That's his preferred will for you, but you have a free will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's a choice. Who are you going to trust? In all your ways, acknowledge him. You can decide whether you can acknowledge him in all your ways or just some of the ways. You have a choice. But if you acknowledge him, here's what he does. He will make your paths straight, or as the King James says it, probably in the the version that Shannon and I memorized, (laughs) he shall direct thy paths. He will tell us the best way to go. And the outcome when we follow God is always the best outcome. But we have a choice, just like Joseph. Nothing, absolutely nothing, ever turns out better when you reject God's leading. Nothing. And God knows the ramification of your one decision now to disobey him, how it will play out 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now. Like the children's sermon with the three cups, I knew where the quarter was. If you trust me and I tell you it's under this cup, why wouldn't you pick that cup? And in all three services, when I did that, the children hesitated to believe me. And in one service, they didn't, and it ended up in tears for both of us. (laughs) Why don't we trust God? He knows which cup the quarter is under, and he tells us. Well, this spoiled, arrogant 17-year-old boy named Joseph is thrown into a pit by his loving brothers, (laughs) or we should say his hating brothers. He's sold as a slave to a traveling band of Arab traders who then sell him as a slave to Potiphar, who is the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh, who is the king of the known world at that time. And one day, this teenage boy, Joseph, 
who's a strappingly good-looking young man, has an unexpected opportunity to change his circumstances when his boss's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, starts making repeated advances at him. Genesis 39, we pick up the story in verse 6. We're going to pick it up in the last half of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me around, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this evil and sin against God. We should not overlook how important this one decision was. Here is a 17-year-old male. He's away from his family. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't have a Bible. It's only between him and God. And he makes a decision which will shape his life and the world hereafter. And he rejects her advances. Now to add some perspective to the story of seduction, it's helpful to know that the Hebrew word for officer used of Mr. Potiphar, when it says he was an officer in Pharaoh's court, that word officer used in Genesis 39.1 is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word, Sarish. And Sarish, that Hebrew word, the root of the word means to castrate. And over one third of the times this Hebrew word Sarish is used in the Old Testament, it's translated in the English as eunuch, not as official or officer. And the reason is, back in the ancient world, if you were a ruler and you had other people working for you, you wanted to make sure they didn't kill you to take over your kingdom and let their heirs rule. Well, if they can't have any heirs, that might take care of the problem. So world rulers surrounded them with men who were made eunuchs. Dr. Henry Morris, theologian, who wrote an excellent commentary in the book of Genesis, suggests that Mr. Potiphar, who was called a eunuch, was probably a eunuch. Now, whether he was married and came home one day and said, Honey, I got good news, bad news. <laughs> I got a new job offer. That's the good news. What's the bad news? And he told her. Or whether he was already a eunuch and he married his wife for political reasons and they got married, we don't know. We don't know. All we know is that Mrs. Potiphar was, how do I say this delicately, really interested in Joseph. And she pursued him day after day. But he refused her advances. And that one decision would affect what happened 20 years later. The only reason that Joseph probably wasn't beheaded 
when his wife ratted him out and said that he had done what he hadn't done is because Mr. Potiphar probably knew his wife, he probably knew Joseph, and he probably knew the story wasn't true. But he had to do something, so he put him in the political prison, but he didn't take his life. Joseph didn't know how that decision, that one decision, would play out 20 years later. All he knew is that he had to obey God, and he trusted God, and he obeyed God because God knows everything actual and potential. Which brings us to number two on your outline there, a second thing that we learned from the story, and that's this. What you do now helps determine who you are later. What you do now helps determine who you are later. This 17-year-old boy's decision determined in part who he would become and how he would be able to save the world 20 years later. Well, let's fast forward 13 years to when Joseph is 30 years old. And he found himself standing before the ruler of the world, the known world, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And this supreme ruler, the Pharaoh of Egypt, had had a dream. And we see now, not an arrogant young man, we see a young man who's stable, at peace. He doesn't say, hey, now that I got your attention, I want to tell you what happened to me and how I ended up here and it was unfair and all these things in prison. It's just not right. He didn't do that. He stands before Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, I'll interpret your dream. Gives God the credit. He says, you dreamt of seven fat cows being eaten by seven skinny cows, and you dreamt of seven ears of corn that were fat being eaten by seven skinny corn, uh, ears of corn that were skinny. And he said, God is telling you that there's going to be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of terrible famine. And then Joseph told the ruler of the world, the Pharaoh, his recommendation on what should be done never claiming that he should be the one to do it or he should be in charge. He just told him. He was cool, calm, and he was collected. He was at peace in the midst of a crisis. And Pharaoh noticed the character of this man and put him in charge. Second only to Pharaoh. Seven years later, when Joseph turns 37 years old, The story starts at 17, now he's 37, it's been 20 years. His brothers show up. And they're hungry, and they're starving, and they bow before Joseph, not knowing who he is. Genesis chapter 41, verse 53 41:53 when the 7 years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end and that's 20 years after our story started and the 7 years of famine began to come just as Joseph had said when there was famine in all the lands but in all the land of Egypt there was bread so when all the land of Egypt was famished the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians go to Joseph Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Joseph saves the world. 
The third principle we learn here is waiting on God. Number three, waiting on God involves waiting. (laughs) It involves waiting as God prepares you for your best future. As God prepares you for your best future, waiting is not wasted time. God is preparing you. He's preparing me for our best future. All of our lives have been disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic and the responses by the governments around us. And we can't change that. But what you and I can do is we can trust God in the midst of a world crisis and be at peace. Because God knows every option and he knows the best for us to choose. And when we acknowledge him in all our ways, he makes our paths straight. Once Joseph is reunited with his family, look what Joseph wisely and humbly tells his brothers. Again, we see his heart now is at peace. He demonstrates a heart of humility, not arrogance, in chapter 50, verses 20 and 21. Genesis 50, 20, and as for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. They used their free will for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The ones who spoke evil about him, he spoke kindly to because his heart was at peace, because he was a man of obedience to God in the midst of crisis. And Joseph and his family's best future had necessitated Joseph waiting on God as God prepared him for his best future. What you do now during our world crisis determines who you will be later. So I encourage you to choose like Joseph did to trust God, to be obedient to God, and let your heart be at peace in the midst of a world crisis. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your heads so you can have a private moment. Do you have the peace of Jesus Christ in your heart? The Lord Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. He rose from the grave to show that he'd conquered death and opened the way to eternal life. And if you never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and save you, I urge you to do it right now. To say something like, Lord Jesus, I believe you died and rose again. I believe you did it for me. Please come into my life and save me. And that will change your future forever. Lord Jesus, help us to be obedient. Forgive us when we're disobedient. Empower us with your spirit to do better this week than perhaps we did last week, that we might honor you in all we think and do. We love you, Jesus. Amen.